If you've ever heard the phrase, the Holy Spirit, and you want to know what it means, where do you start? Well, you have to start on page one of the Bible, where the uncreated world is depicted as this dark, chaotic place. But then above the chaos, God's Spirit is there, hovering, ready to bring about life and order and beauty. Okay, but what is God's Spirit? Yeah, so the Spirit is the way the biblical authors talk about God's personal presence. The Hebrew word is ruach. Ruach. Yeah, you got to clear your throat at the end. So what is it? Well, ruach can refer to a number of different things, but what they all have in common is energy. Energy? How so? So there's an invisible energy that makes the clouds move or the tree branches sway. Right. Wind. So in Hebrew, that's ruach. Okay. Now take a big breath. <sighs> so you feel that inside you. Yeah, the air? Well, specifically the energy, right? The vitality in your body that you get from breathing deeply. That too is ruach. And this is the same word used in the Bible to describe God's personal presence. Just like wind and breath are invisible, God's spirit is invisible. Wind is powerful, and so God's spirit is powerful. And just as breath keeps us alive, so God's spirit sustains all of life. Yeah, Ruach. Now, as we continue on in the story of the Bible, we see God's Ruach giving special empowerment to people for specific tasks. The first person in the Bible this happens to is Joseph. God's Spirit enables him to understand and interpret dreams. And then it happens to this guy named Bezalel, and he's an artist. God's Spirit empowers him with wisdom and skills. He's given creative genius to make beautiful things in the tabernacle. And we also see God's Ruach empower a group of people called the prophets. They're able to see what's happening in history from God's point of view. That's exactly right. And here's the problem as the prophets saw it. While God's Ruach had created a really good world, humans have given in to evil. They've unleashed chaos into it through their injustice. A new type of disorder. Yes. And the prophet said the spirit would come, just like in Genesis 1, but now to transform the human heart, to empower people to truly love God and others. How will this new act of God's spirit happen? Well, centuries pass and we are introduced to Jesus. And at the beginning of his mission, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is being baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. Yeah, the sky opens up and God's spirit comes and rests on him like a bird. This story is saying that God's spirit is empowering Jesus to begin the new creation. And we see this happening when he heals people or forgives their sins. He's creating life where there once was death. Now, Israel's religious leaders oppose Jesus and they eventually have him killed. But even here, God's spirit is at work. The earliest disciples of Jesus, who saw him alive from the dead, said it was God's energizing spirit that raised Jesus. This is the beginning of new creation. Yes, and it's still going. When Jesus appeared to his closest followers, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And soon after that, the spirit powerfully comes on all of his disciples. So that they can become a part of this new creation and share the good news and learn how to live by the energy and influence of God's spirit. And so today, the spirit is still hovering in dark places. Yes, pointing people to Jesus, transforming and empowering them so they can love God and others. And the Christian hope is that the spirit is going to finish the job. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a new humanity living in a new world that's permeated with God's love and life-giving spirit. Today is Pentecost. It shows up on our worship calendar every year. 
And it is a remembering of the story in Acts chapter 2 where the gathered disciples experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit like a mighty wind. Pentecost literally means 50th, as in 50 days after the resurrection. And Pentecost has roots in the Jewish celebration of Shavuot, that follows Passover by exactly seven complete weeks. And Shavuot celebrates the harvest and also celebrates the giving of the Torah. And so underlining the remembrance of the harvest and underlying the remembrance of the gift of the Torah and Acts chapter 2 is this desire to live by the energy and the influence of God's Spirit. That's our focus today, the desire to live by the energy and influence of the Holy Spirit. Our scripture passage is from the Hebrew Bible, from Ezekiel chapter 37. I'll start with verse 1. Ezekiel said, God grabbed me. God's Spirit took me up and set me down in the middle of an open plain, strewn with bones. He led me around and among them, a lot of bones. There were bones all over the plain, dry bones, bleached by the sun. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, Master God, only you know that. He said to me, prophesy over these bones. Dry bones, listen to the message of God. God the master told the dry bones, watch this, I'm bringing the breath of life to you and you'll come to life. I'll attach sinews to you, put meat on your bones, cover you with skin and breathe life into you. You'll come alive and you'll realize that I am God. I prophesied just as I'd been commanded. As I prophesied, there was a sound and oh, a rustling. The bones moved and came together bone to bone. I kept watching, sinews formed, then muscles on the bones, then skin stretched over them, but they had no breath in them. He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, tell the breath, God the master says, come from the four winds, come breath, breathe on these slain bodies, breathe life. So I prophesied just as he commanded me. The breath entered them and they came alive. They stood up on their feet, a huge army. Then God said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Listen to what they're saying. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. There's nothing left of us. Therefore prophesy. Tell them, God the master says, I'll dig up your graves and bring you out alive, O my people. Then I'll take you straight to the land of Israel. When I dig up graves and bring you out as my people, you'll realize that I am God. I'll breathe my life into you and you will live. Then I'll lead you straight back to your land and you'll realize that I am God. I've said it and I'll do it. God's decree. This is a story of God for the very people of God. Thanks be to God. On Wednesday of this week, a 107-year-old Viola Fletcher testified before the House Judiciary Committee. It was her first trip to Washington, D.C. in 107 years. 
Viola Fletcher is the oldest living survivor of the Tulsa Race Massacre that happened on May the 31st and June the 1st of 1921. And so next year will be 100 years since the Tulsa, Oklahoma Massacre, which some consider to be the worst incident of racial violence in our history and also the least well-known. Hundreds of people were killed, and thousands of people were left without homes. When Mrs. Fletcher was seven years old, she said that she was awakened in the night by her parents and her five siblings, and she was told that they had to get out, and that was it. She told Congress, I still see black men being shot. I still see black bodies lying on the street. I still smell smoke and fire. I still hear screaming. I have lived through the massacre every day of my life. Our country may forget, but I will not forget. Survivors and our descendants cannot forget. Mrs. Fletcher said that she is the daughter of Lucinda Ellis and John Wesley Ford which made my little Methodist ears perk up. (laughs) I don't know if she's Methodist, but what I do know is she's a prophet. And she is a prophet in the tradition of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a Jerusalem priest. And Ezekiel was a survivor, a survivor of violence. He was a prisoner of war. He was taken captive and deported to Babylonia a decade before the complete destruction of Jerusalem. And all his writing is done in the aftermath of his displacement and in the downfall of his homeland. No doubt he was uncertain about the fate of those that he left behind. He struggles with his captivity. He struggles with the death of his wife and the imminent destruction of the temple. Some of the most recent biblical scholarship takes his trauma very seriously. When Ezekiel looks out at a valley of dry bones, he may very well see the remains of his loved ones. Not respectfully resting in peace after a life well lived, but brutally murdered. Their remains picked over by scavengers bones bleached out by the sun. Those bones that Ezekiel sees are his people. It's a mistake to read this passage and not see the pain. The vision of a valley of dry bones, it's not random. It's not accidental. It's very personal for this prophet. Often, Ezekiel is referred to as the strangest of our prophets. He transgresses the borders of sanity. He's unstable, maybe a bit deranged. But I want you to know this morning, he earned it. He's a survivor of trauma. He's a survivor of uncertainty. The scripture says the power of God grabs Ezekiel with a force like an army. And it sets him down in a valley of dry bones. Then this instruction follows. Prophesy to these bones. Say to the bones, listen to the message of God. Prophesy to bones. 
without ears. It's impossible they're going to hear a prophet's message. But before Ezekiel can say a word, the Lord says, watch this. I will cause breath to enter these bones and you shall live. Breath, wind will come from the four corners of the, of the earth. They will come upon those who will slain. This breath will come upon those who are slain and they shall live. And the breath, the ruach, the energy comes powerfully and the bodies are fastened back together and they live. Verse 10 says, they stood up on their feet like a huge army. This vision holds in its memory the Lord God's creation of Adam. Chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 7 says, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So it's a mistake to read Ezekiel 37 and simply call it God's strength, God's power, God's supremacy, like magic. The prophet's vision, it's much more like creation. Taking dirt, an entity that is no thing, and forming it, animating it into some something. However... It's not mud or clay that Ezekiel sees. It's destruction that Ezekiel witnesses. God's working materials here are death and destruction and violence and decay. It can't get any worse. And into this disaster comes God's energy, a new energy, a wind that is sourced at the ends of the earth, a fresh breath. God is creator, this is true, but even more than that, God is restorer. New York Times correspondent Jody Cantor recently interviewed her 97-year-old grandmother who is a Holocaust survivor. The interview that I saw this week was introduced with the results of a recent survey that said that 63% of millennials and Gen Z adults don't know that 6 million Jewish people were killed in the Holocaust. I find that hard to believe. When Hannah Cantor was a teenager, she lived in a small town in Poland. And she told her granddaughter that German airplanes flew overhead over her village And soldiers arrived on the ground of her town, and they shot Jews in the streets. Her family was moved to a ghetto. Hannah saved her sister from a death camp from Auschwitz by convincing a German soldier that she and her sister were both strong and healthy, and they should instead go to a work camp. And as the two women boarded a train for the work camp, they left Hannah's niece and nephew babies in a chicken coop. And they do not know what happened to them. Her three brothers died a violent death in a work camp right before American soldiers liberated that camp. And so Jody Cantor asked her grandmother, she said to her grandmother, Grandmother, 
You lived through a terrible trauma. And yet you have always been one of the happiest people that I know. Why is that? Her grandmother responded, well, we tried to survive and we lived. So we only had to go forward. And we were always living with hope. Hope that we would be free. Hope in those circumstances, I find it hard to believe. I don't know about you, but I would like to have some of that kind of hope. I heard writer Anne Lamont retell a sermon illustration from her own pastor that helps me with the idea of attaining hope. It's about catching bees. She said, you know, you can trap a bee in the bottom of a mason jar pretty easily. You don't have to have a beekeeper suit. You don't have to have fancy equipment. It only takes a little honey. A little honey on the inside of a mason jar, the bottom of the jar, you don't even need a lid. (laughs) Because when the bee gets in there, the bee stays and walks along bumping up into the glass, probably muttering and bitter if they're anything like me, because they don't look up. The bee never looks up. That's all they would have to do is to look up. Look up and there's freedom and there's beauty. I believe that it's hope that compels us to look up. Old Testament professor Matt Schlimm also helped me this week with the concept of hope by teaching me that in the Hebrew language, the root word for hope is also the root word for wait. So to hope and to wait have the same root word in Hebrew. This makes sense to me uh, because to hope for something inevitably means that I have to wait. It usually means that I'm waiting when I'm hoping. Spiritually speaking, hope requires my patience. I have to be patient. Dr. Schlim also reminded me that many abstract concepts in the Hebrew language and the Hebrew Bible are connected to a concrete image. And so this is true of hoping and waiting as well. They are both connected to a concrete image, and that concrete image is cord, as in a rope. So hope, then, is like a cord attached to something bigger that's in the future. Biblical hope isn't simple optimism. It's not. Biblical hope is attaching our cord to God, trusting that God will set things right. You know, I live on some acreage now that I lovingly call the ranch, but I think true ranchers would probably laugh at me. (laughs) I do believe that hope is a ranch concept because it's like a lasso, right? It's standing in the middle of whatever disaster I have and using a lasso to grab a hold of what will make it better. Spiritually speaking, hope is standing in a pile of dry bones and lassoing my rope to God. And every time I'm outside and I feel the wind or I do a little bit of physical work 
and I have to catch my breath, I'm reminded. I'm reminded of what I'm lassoing. I'm reminded of God's energy and God's influence at work in the world. In his book, God's Politics, Jim Wallace tells a story about being a part of a U.S. delegation that traveled to South Africa several years ago to support the anti-apartheid movement. He, he was sitting in an ecumenical service in Cape Town in a beautiful Anglican church listening to Bishop Desmond Tutu preach. While he was preaching, the African security police, the branch of the government that was charged with enforcing apartheid, stormed into the church. Desmond Tutu stopped preaching, and he looked at the intruders as they lined the walls. They were armed with guns, but they were also armed with pen and paper to take notes, to record whatever was said. It was a threat of imprisonment to the bishop and to the church leaders. Wallace said that Tutu met their eyes and he said, you are very powerful, very powerful indeed, but I serve a God who cannot be mocked. And then the bishop smiled with his typical warmth and he said to the soldiers, so since you've already lost, I invite you to come and join the winning side. The people in the church went ecstatic. They were transformed by the bishop's challenge to brute force, his challenge to violent power. Just minutes before, everybody in that church was cowering in fear. But in that moment of prophetic vision, the people leapt to their feet. They shouted praises and they began dancing and they danced past the police who were lining the sanctuary wall. They danced out into the streets. Ah, to live by that energy, to be influenced by God's spirit. If it's possible for a valley of dry bones, I tell you, there's definitely hope for you and for me. Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit. You work in each of us. And you work in our world. You work with persistent energy. And you bring life and freedom Lord God, you inspired dry bones to march home and you empowered disciples to venture out of Jerusalem. You still place prophets among us that in the darkest of times place their hope in you. So Lord, we attach our ropes to you. May we bless those who bless you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.